previously on Star Wars Beyond the Films. The hosts began reviewing from the ruins of Alderaan. Now, after repeatedly bashing their heads against the wall, they, like Rocky Balboa, the apparent character model for all of Ryan Kelly's male Star Wars characters in his artwork, our valiant hosts shake it off and move back in for From the Ruins of Alderaan Part 2, soon to be part of Star Wars Omnibus F*** It All. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 133 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman, and with me like Han slid into the story about the Rebellion, the EU guru himself, the Count of Two Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey everybody, we're back for part two of From the Ruins of Alderaan, or as I like to call it, From the Ruins of Continuity. I mean, uh... Yeah, Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2, second arc, uh, second half. Let's do this thing. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue to explore Star Wars Volume 2, From the Ruins of Alderaan, by Brian Wood. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyond Wars and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, we're picking up here with issue number 10. It's a six-issue arc. It's issues 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Okay, so uh, the second arc of Star Wars Volume 2, as it's being called by Dark Horse Comics, again by Brian Wood. Thankfully, I must say, uh, I was excited to see Carlos de Anda back doing the artwork. The first three issues of this uh, had Ryan Kelly doing the artwork, and it was rough at times. We made the joke last time that basically... It seemed like the character models he used to be able to draw most of the faces, especially the male faces, were sculpted out of mashed potatoes. Now, we're back to what had been the saving grace of this series, which is Carlos de Anda's awesome artwork that borders the line between traditional comic art and almost like an anime or manga style to it uh, that makes for some cool visuals along the way. We pick up where our characters were last seen and just kind of roll with things from there. So starting aboard the Devastator, Wedge and Luke have apparently escaped the firefight they were in, and Wedge has finished the slicing job that he was doing, because we last saw them basically in the hallway of the Devastator, and now they've managed to get, well, at first we don't quite know where they are. They've managed to slip themselves into a pair of TIE Interceptors, where apparently 
they're able to use their communicators still without being eavesdropped on or picked up, apparently, to communicate back and forth with each other as they're basically just chilling in these TIE Interceptors wearing Stormtrooper armor uh, that they apparently got from, I guess, the guys that they killed because earlier Luke was the one who said, you know, it's a little hard to impersonate a Stormtrooper. It's tougher than it looks, and yet they've got Stormtrooper armor here, unless the colorist here, uh, Gabe Altaib, if I'm pronouncing that name right, just didn't realize it was supposed to be pilot armor because... When they fly, it's not black armor, it's white. You would figure the Imperials would be like, hey, why are stormtroopers flying those interceptors? Um, but they're in these interceptors, and they're basically able to have a quiet moment of conversation. A conversation that was actually kind of cool, barring... It's one of these weird like dichotomies here. Talked about the frustration last episode about how it seems like in some cases, Brian Wood did his homework and researched some Star Wars stuff to use, like the Kuleran system and such, and that sort of thing. But then at the same time, it's just smacking in the face of continuity whenever he feels like it, such as the whole issue of the executor already being ready to go four months before it should be, and, oh, uh, uh, Luke showing up for his first return to Tatooine yet again in another story and that sort of thing here. Uh, we get a conversation that winds up hitting on both one of the best, most surprising continuity references to the Legends continuity that Brian Wood makes, and one of those head-slapping, oh my god, I can't believe they're freaking trying to rewrite continuity again moments of this entire series. They're sitting there talking, and Luke's saying, you know, it's not a secret about Prithy, because Prithy was in an X-Wing attached to the bottom of the Star Destroyer waiting for them. Says, you know, we're past the time. She's probably already gone back to the fleet by now to report on what's going on. She's probably already left. Which, like, yeah, you know, I, it's no secret about you two. Uh, I... You know, I, I'm envious of you, too. You know, Mom Mothma t has her own views about fraternizing, but sometimes you just kind of need to. You know, you have no idea if we're going to be alive in a matter of weeks and so forth. Really kind of a nice conversation there about the nature of relationships in a time of war. And he'll wind up mentioning um, right before they take off, right as they actually show the, the fact that this is a bay with a whole bunch of TIE fighters ready to go, he actually even talks about how there was someone for him at one point, and he says to uh, ask him about Mala Tenero at some point. This is a reference back to Star Wars Tales number 23's Rob Williams-based story called Lucky. Wedge Antilles Inn, Lucky was the way that it was uh, labeled at the time, where it basically tells about the so-called curse of Wedge Antilles, as it said on the cover art, where someone that he cared for, Mala, winds up dying. So Brian Wood has taken the time to research back into Star Wars Tales to find a love interest that Wedge had that happened to have died to make use of this conversation. That's surprising, yet awesome from a continuity standpoint. And then, of course, when talking about Prithy, he says, you know, she won't let you down. She's Rogue Squadron. And then everybody's like slapping their foreheads like, oh, hell no. Where are you? Oh, no, not no. And yep. You mean Red Squadron? No, Rogue. Just a name I've been kicking around. I know Leia Organa's got us going by stealth, or depending on which part of the arc you're looking at, Shadow Squadron, I believe it was. But we can't be stealth forever, and I want the Alliance to retire the Red designation in memory. So why not Rogue? We are rebels, after all. So Rogue Squadron is a name that is Wedge's idea. He's coming up with it now. They're basically rewriting the backstory of where Rogue Squadron comes from. Now it's Shadow Squadron that's going to be reforming and becoming the first Rogue Squadron. It's... Uh, it's not Red Squadron, and you got the whole, like, like, splitting up and everything into the different halves and all that. Did Brian Wood not see Return of the Jedi? 
We're going to retire. Not. We're going to retire Red Squadron and instead have Rogue Squadron. So maybe my brain is 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 taking a, a brain fart kind of moment. But no. wasn't Wedge Red Leader of Red Squadron during the Battle of Endor in Return of the Jedi? I believe you're right. And they've used those color designations multiple times. I mean, you ain't retiring red. You're not retiring the color wedge. Maybe it's just the fact that they're sitting inside these ties inside the, the hangar bay, and all they're seeing is that red light coming down from above, and he's like, I'm tired of red. I'm so tired of red! <laughs> but yeah, so it's a good conversation, except it drops that rogue squadron bomb. She'll have everybody going, oh, hell no, and hoping... That this was just him coming up with the name that just is inspired somehow that later that's why that name will be chosen. Not that we'll actually see the formation of Rogue Squadron, but we'll find by the end of these three issues that, no, we're actually seeing the formation of Rogue Squadron and, they, and they've gone and taken a tinkle upon the previous continuity of it all. But they're in the bay, in these interceptors, just kind of waiting for their chance to escape the next time the interceptors launch. Well, do you get the feeling like they're they're in the fighters and the fighters are being pulled through the system? Because, I mean, at one point they're red. You see the shaft that's red with blue at the end, and then all of a sudden it's blue, and then even in the cockpit they're in blue. It's like it almost gives you the feeling like they're on a conveyor belt being moved forward into the launch bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems kind of like they're being just, like, shifted. Like, now that the pilots are in them, they can now be sort of primed for launch, like putting a torpedo in the tube to get ready to launch into battle. So then we jump to the Rebel Fleet and Home 1. Basically, a TIE tie fighter, an X-Wing, is on its way back. And it's not broadcasting any signals. And, of course, my Mothma happens to be on the bridge to tell Admiral Akbar, wait, wait, let him through. You know, it's a secret mission, stealth squadron, all that stuff. You know, she's got to keep stuff from everybody. So just let him through. Let him through. We get a brief discussion about this, you know, about what's going on with this between her and Akbar. And this is one of those few times that, that Brian Woods, or Brian Woods, uh, Carlos DeAnda's artwork doesn't work for me is in how he draws Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma is a bobblehead in the way that she is drawn. She has this really long neck with this big old head atop it that kind of looks like somebody should be flicking her in the forehead and going like a bobblehead. Um, <laughs> the, the returning ship, though, is Prithy because after... After in the last issue saying, no, we're going to stick around so that we have to take a direct route rather than the circuitous route because I'm going to stay as long as I can and keep trying to communicate with them. And somehow R5 popping out of the droid socket and rolling around for no freaking reason whatsoever, it seems. Apparently, she did leave because it really was past the time that she could have stayed, as Luke was saying. She made it all the way back to the fleet, apparently by a direct route that is going to be able to lead the Imperials to them. And she is... In bad shape. Life support's down pretty much. She arrives, and Mon Mothma herself winds up having to perform CPR on her. And she said, you know, uh, she's a commander. And apparently whispers something in Mon Mothma's ear, which lets Mon Mothma know that the Imperials probably tracked her here. And they go to battle stations, essentially here. So Prithy is back. That had me questioning, though, what Prithy's orders were. I mean, so... A point of time runs out, and she's supposed to run back to the Rebel fleet and tell them what? They're captured. That was the plan. I don't understand what her part of this plan was really supposed to serve. I mean, 
I get from the writing standpoint what it was supposed to serve, and she served it well, a little too well, because it didn't match or line up with the plot. Like, she's there to help them and then to go back and tell the rebels what? Where to pick them up? Where they're going to be? Or was she supposed to just be like, hey, see this little light over here? Follow me all the way back to the rebels. Because that seems like what the writer wanted, and the writer got what he wanted. (laughs) Yeah, I I wonder if she was supposed to be like an escort or something for them as they escaped if they needed it. But since it took too long, she went ahead and headed back. That brings us, again, one of the things we talked about last time about this is that they're telling intercutting stories. There's Leia's story, Luke and Wedge's story, Vader's story, and the story of Han, Chewie, and Perla on Coruscant. And they're intercutting these stories as if they're all happening simultaneously. And yet, repeatedly, there are huge gaps of time that happen in one part of the story that don't somehow affect the other parts of the story. So now Prithi has made it all the way back from the Imperial fleet to the Rebel fleet, granted by a direct route instead of bouncing around, so maybe she had a super, super, super hyperdrive like what happened with R2-D2 and R2 Come Home, where he somehow in the Clone Wars (laughs) made it all the way back to Coruscant in, in record time. But now we pick up pretty much exactly where we left off with almost no passage of time on Coruscant where uh, Han and Chewie and Perla are now aboard the Millennium Falcon. They are trying to zip themselves away from Coruscant, and Boba Fett, unless he's been hanging on for a very, very, very long time, is hanging on the outside of the Millennium Falcon, having just been dumped along with Perla and Han off the Golan defense platform onto the top of the Millennium Falcon. Finally, they just get themselves up far enough into space that Boba is not able to stay with them because no atmosphere and whatnot, so he finally just has to let go of the Falcon and basically fall back to Coruscant. Hopefully his jetpack will save him, which presumably it will, saying, you know, you cannot run so far, Solo, that I will not find you, as he goes falling. And this is where Perla decides, and since they need some place to go, some place to hide out for a bit, says, you know, hey, uh, I've got a place we can go, because she's a junk hauler, and we will find that she, in the Kularan system, or the Kularan system, has basically been scavenging away stuff or squirreling away stuff that she has run into that that she's kind of done either from the garbage or in cover of being garbage and has this huge scrapyard worth of stuff that she can then use that could be an asset to the Alliance. But again, it's another of these weird intercuts because the time doesn't seem to match up. But finally, it seems like this ongoing chase that's pretty much just been a chase for the last three issues is finally going to go somewhere other than Hey, look at the cool chase. Yeah. Again, the pacing is just all over the place. I do like, though, that it gives you that classic Han Solo, it's not my fault kind of thing. You know, he's like, uh, she goes, man, Solo, he must really hit you. What did I do? And it shows a picture of Fett clinging on the outside. She's like, okay, okay, what did I do to him? And then, you know, you're looking up through the cockpit, and he's above the cockpit at this point on the glass. I really like that. That was kind of like, oh, poodoo moment, you know? But when they flip the thing around and go up for outer space and Fett starts dropping, I'm just like, why in the hell did I have a limit on my jetpack use? I mean, obviously Fett doesn't. (laughs) I mean, it was the first thing I was thinking. It was like, there's no way he's got enough fuel. I mean, he was using the jetpack to stay attached to the Falcon as it was flying around. He's got to be running out of fuel. (laughs) That brings us again in what seems like a matter of only seconds passing instead of enough time for Prithi to get all the way back to the Rebel fleet to the Venator-class Star Destroyer that is in the ruins of Alderaan 
where Leia has been confronting Tag Rogarin, who was the designer, or at least one of the designers, the conceptualizer of the super laser for the Death Star that destroyed Alderaan, who has called her aboard his ship um, to basically discuss Alderaan, and he's basically confessing to her, and um, it's, it's kind of an interesting confrontation between the two. But I said the Venator-class Star Destroyer because of the inconsistency. We talked about this last time. Now the inconsistency rears its head. This Star Destroyer, this Venator, was named in the previous issues the Audacity. Okay? Now in this issue, and it's not just once, or I would say it was just a brief little slip of the tongue type error, repeatedly in this issue, at least three times that I noticed, they call the ship the Resolute. That is Anakin's flagship Venator from the Clone Wars cartoon series. What? Why? It's not... It doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent, and again, it's as if Brian Wood is writing and not paying attention to what he himself has written. Talked about this before in the last episode, how there's a difference between a continuity error with the rest of the Legends continuity because a writer just didn't know about something and was never corrected, versus not being able to keep your own stuff straight. And here he is, just randomly renaming the ship the Resolute for this issue, rather than being the audacity from before. I wonder if it's just one of those things like, man, you guys are going to complain about continuity errors. Fine, we'll add in these so that you can complain about these instead of the whole Legends thing, and maybe it'll take your mind off of it. Kind of like, oh, wow, he's got a sore thumb. Quick, punch him in the face. See, now he's not worried about his thumb anymore type of things. (laughs) But Leia's holding him at blaster point. Again, we get a nice little conversation. They were going to be having tea so Tag Rogarin is just kind of sitting there. Leia's holding him at blaster point as we last saw her back in the previous issue. And he's saying, you know, you know, we're all victims of the Empire's aggression and brutality. You know, we all share the sadness left in its wake. She has the great moment saying, some of us more than others. He's like, true. He doesn't try to justify his actions or anything. Basically say, you know, look, you know, he'll die in the floating graveyard, either by Leia's hand or when uh, the different pieces of Alderaan, what are now basically uh, asteroid-style debris, finally batter the ship and destroy it. Either way, justice will be done, and he just asks her, hey, you want to finish your tea? And he's kind of resigned to this. And rather than taking him in, which you really couldn't do in an X-Wing anyway, and rather than killing him right then and there, she basically takes the option that, while seeming kind of odd to us a little bit with her being a rebel leader, I think sort of fits the emotion of the scene. If Leia is still raw from what happened to Alderaan, given how many times they've sort of had her be emotionally raw or not back and forth within this era of the continuity and such, she just decides to leave. She hops aboard the X-Wing, takes off. Um, She's crying while she takes off. She's wiping tears away. Basically just says, you know, activate the homing beacon that I left aboard the Resolute. The audacity. And when they get back to the fleet, she'll notify Mon Mothma about it to come and collect the ship and then put him on trial for war crimes. You know, she's not abandoning her duty to the rebellion. She's simply walking away at the moment, which fits the emotional tenor and yet still fits her duty. That, I think, worked well. As much as it kind of was a head-scratcher at the time of, wait, she's not going to do anything about this herself? The fact that she immediately gives the instructions to T4 and explains away the actions like that, and the fact that she is crying as she leaves... I think the emotion of the moment justifies the scene. Although I did see a lot of folks frustrated by the fact that she didn't just shoot him or lock him in his own Venator brig to wait for her to send somebody back to get him or something. Yeah, there's a lot in this scene that has me stopping and scratching my head and kind of questioning things. 
you know, I mean, the Resolute was the first one, and I didn't even think about the fact that that was Anakin's ship. And so it kind of makes you wonder, you know, was that something after the fact? They're like, hey, make it the Resolute, and, and you know, we can tie it to the Clone Wars. Uh, and so they changed their mind, and they're going to go back in the trade paperbacks and make it the Resolute all throughout? Or, you know, do we have two writers here working on it, and we're just not going to own up to that and, and pretend that all these continuity issues are all coming from Brian Woods himself? I mean, there are a lot of things that made me question, you know, what's going on here. You know, the whole point of the Resolute in, in the first place. I mean, what did this, sir, this serve the story? I mean, you know, she goes out and does all this stuff. And then in the end comes back. I mean, and, and then we find out, oh, well, she got this magic call while she was away. I mean, this whole point of this doesn't serve anything for me. I don't get what it really delivers for anything aside from, oh, it's just a little bit of character development for Leia in a universe that we're going to stop deliver, developing this character. Another thing that, that made me stop and, and think about, though, you know, I was just mentioning the last issue about the uh, R2-T4 and the fact she keeps calling him T4 and he's an R2 unit and all that. Except for when you look at him, his dome is not an R2 unit dome. So it's like, okay, is he a modified R2 unit maybe? I mean, it's a, I, I don't know. I got the, the whole scene was so pointless that I got drawn into smaller details. <laughs> so, it, it, Which gets me to that other one. It's like suddenly he doesn't care about saving the library. I mean, a second ago in the last issue, he was like, oh, sit, take it, save it. Now he's just like, oh, you know, we can just let it crush and destroy me. I don't care. And it's like, well, you know, why, don't you want to save this stuff anymore? A second ago you did. That brings us back to the Imperial side of things. Vader, aboard the Executor, gets another call from Beresia. Last time we saw her, she had been transferred to the Devastator after a tongue lashing from Palpatine at the Death Star. She happens to be there when Wedge and Luke showed up. Uh, she recognizes Wedge as a rebel uh, by the name Antilles, apparently, because something that's supposed to be like a Smith or a Jones in Star Wars is synonymous with rebellion, apparently, according to Vader. But she finally recognizes Luke, essentially. She's able to find records that identify him from going through some obscure databases, lets Vader know this, and Vader basically said to capture him at all costs, doesn't matter about which, but capture Luke at all costs. So here we have her basically saying she's found more information. And the information is, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker of Tatooine. Now, he's said Skywalker before. Not sure if Vader has said Luke Skywalker before in this series. Hopefully they're not trying to use this series to do what the Marvel series with his last name and Vader's quest with his full name had already done. Set around the same time as this, or right before this, two months after the Battle of Yavin. Uh, and have this be how he learns the name Luke. But he does get some new background here. Born some 19 years ago by the Galactic Standard Calendar, parents unknown. He was adopted by a, an Owen Lars and Beru White son, both native to that planet. Kind of nice that they do point out, adopted by Beru White son as opposed to Baru Lars, uh, going back to the prequel name for the character before she winds up marrying Owen and such, though it's interesting that a boyfriend and girlfriend were adopting a child as opposed to a married couple. The dates are somewhat imprecise. <laughs> Brian Wood saying something chronologically is imprecise within character dialogue. There's irony in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but the dates are somewhat imprecise. There are no official Imperial birth or adoption records, so I have to rely on local information, permits, pilot licenses, credit accounts, and medical records. He is an impoverished moisture farmer, my lord, quite unremarkable in all respects. How he came to be loose on this ship, and Vader's like, no, he's not unremarkable. We need to capture him. It doesn't matter if she understands her orders. She must get him. Uh, he's a threat and a force, no pun intended, beyond her comprehension, etc., etc. By all means, send a stormtrooper to put a bolt through Antilles' forehead and be done with him. I like the callousness of that. But Skywalker, 
If it takes half the ship's resources, you will locate and detain that man. I'm trusting you with this and no one else, etc., etc. You know, don't fail me. And Bira is basically knowing that her future relies on her capturing Luke. So Vader, basically at this point, it's, it's an all-cost, well, at least half-cost to the ship's resources, not all, ordering her to capture Luke. Meanwhile, Bircher, who still doesn't have a first name yet, he will get one by the end of this arc, is aboard the Devastator as they wind, which is where Vera is, as they wind up emerging from hyperspace near the Rebel fleet. Prithee's actions in returning have apparently led them there. And Bircher decides that he is going to lead the strike against them in a TIE fighter, in a TIE interceptor, because he's supposed to be this ace pilot. A couple of interesting bits within that conversation. He makes a comment, you know, I had no idea they were using such antiquated vessels. This will be an easy victory. Uh, and his second-in-command says, might I remind you, sir? I love his answer. Oh, yes, yes, Yavin, blah, blah, blah. You know, the idea is saying, you know, yeah, the Empire keeps saying, you know, that we shouldn't underestimate the Rebels because of what they did at the Battle of Yavin, but whatever. And he goes and says, you know, he's a precision instrument, not a bomb thrower. He's going to bust out the tight interceptors and charge into battle. In fact, he even sort of says something that kind of leaves us scratching our head until we get to later in the issues here. To hit the shield generators and ion drives, but leave the real work to me. Bircher is taking it upon himself to do the actual killing and ship destroying leaving it up to the Star Destroyer to just disable. And in this case, it's meant to sort of seem like, oh, well, this is his arrogance talking. But it turns out, of course, later that this plays a role in the broader plot. And sure enough, the TIE Fighters are launched with Wedge and Luke somehow in Stormtrooper armor inside the TIE Interceptors among them, charging out into battle. As Wedge says, welcome to the Imperial Navy, Luke. And this issue ends with imminent battle on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, this one, the way it ended, I was kind of okay with it. But there's some things, again, that I, I stop and question. You know, did, does Vader ever ponder how Padme had the kids? You know, how that Luke got to Tatooine? I mean, he's got these details, but shouldn't he be like, well, she died on Mustafar? I mean, that that should open up a whole realm of things that he would want to explore. And then, you know, when Vader tells Bira about, you know, find him at all costs, wouldn't updating Luke's file and putting a bounty on him fall under that? I mean... How is it that they still haven't updated his name in the files when Vader wants him and all this kind of stuff? Like, that just that never really made sense. Plus, Luke's already escaped. So, I mean, like, if I was her, I'd be, like, pointing that out. Like, hey, uh, he's already gotten away. Like, you know, Vader wants her. He's captured. So where did that happen? Where, in Vader's mind, he, Luke went from being captured to he's already escaped Yet he's telling her to find him at all costs. It's like, he's already captured. Why? What? What is going on? Where's the guy that Vader is supposed to be force choking here for not giving him the information he needed in a timely manner? Bircher, though, I, I like the way they played it. You know, at this point, he does seem like a typical imp. Uh, I didn't start to, you know, notice anything. When he does the stuff he does in the next issue, it, it got me. I was kind of like, well, what? You know, which I guess served and disserved its own as we get to that. But you know, I, I, I didn't mind the art, the stormtrooper armor. I did, that did kind of throw me off a little bit. I was kind of like, huh, I wonder, you know, why they're doing that. It's kind of like, you know, in the Clone Wars where Rex goes to that, that conglomerate of phase two and phase three armor. And, uh, you know, they give you an off screen reason as to why, but never in the show do they actually tell you why or never do they even reference the fact that he's got such sick looking armor. It was kind of one of those moments. Well, hey, speaking of not showing us something and leaving it to be assumed. 
That picks up with issue number 11, a glorious issue art-wise. Most of it is a huge battle between the Imperial and Rebel forces, lots of starfighter combat. Carlos de Anda does an awesome job capturing that combat. Uh, but it begins with Bira, Biracia, basically saying, uh-oh, she's in trouble because Luke has managed to escape. So she basically drops the rank insignia off of her uniform and she needs to get the heck out of there. In fact, uh, when they find out that she is deserted, Vader will basically say she must die. And we'll get an offhand reference in a later uh, installment of the series that, oh, she's been caught and killed. She's dead. Okay, so this this is the end of her story, basically, for her. Doesn't really seem to have been much point to it all along, but here she is. But somehow, okay, she's realizing, uh-oh, Skywalker has escaped. She's screwed. She's got to get out of there. Okay, Skywalker has escaped from his cell Surely they know that, and maybe that's why Vader wants her to track him down, because he knows that Skywalker's at least escaped from his cell. But presumably he's still aboard the ship. So why is she thinking it's a lost cause and she has to escape? The only way she could know that Luke has managed to actually escape from the ship is if she knows that Luke and Wedge got aboard those TIE fighters and took off from the ship. In which case, why aren't the other TIE fighters blowing them out of the sky or rounding them up instead of letting them continue flying with the squadron? Either she and the Imperials know they're with the TIE fighters, or they don't. If they don't, it makes no sense for her to be making this assumption in this scene. If they do, it makes no sense for them to still be able to fly unmolested. The beginning of this story contradicts itself. It's like freaking Qui-Gon, being able to not teach Yoda at the beginning of uh, his arc in the Clone Wars Season 6 and somehow being able to at the end without ever getting an explanation as to why. Somebody isn't keeping track of internal story continuity here. Well, I mean, Bria just totally got the shaft. I, I agree with you on that. I mean, you know, she never even had him in her hands and, and he slipped through her fingers and she didn't even know it. You know, and, and then there's another aspect, too. You know, when we see Mon Mothma next, it's like, OK, she's obviously had enough time for a wardrobe change, I would guess. I mean, when they have the moment where uh, where Bircher, he uh, fires and stuff, and you see all the firing going out, I, you know, it's a simple way of describing it. You know, you don't see many of the uh, the blasts coming off the Imperial Star Destroyer, but you see the sky just lit with the blasts. And then you see the next image, you see those blasts impacting the shields on the ship and stuff. I like that, although 3PO in that scene, the first one, where you oh dear, they're firing on us. He does not at all look like 3PO. And there have been moments throughout the series where 3PO's art has been pretty pretty shoddy at best. So that was one of those ones that, that just didn't fit right as well. I, I just, again, I get back to Burra and, uh, you know, Burra just kind of got the shaft hardcore. And there's so many aspects of this story, you know, when, you, when I look at it as a whole, that I'm just kind of like, you know, all these were were devices to serve the plot for the writer. And they were glaring in that regard. And I, I think that part of, that's part of what tainted all of this for me. Uh, that, that fact that, you know, that it just didn't quite work for me. I think Bira Sia, I think Sia is her married name. I think her maiden name was Ex Machina. Anyway, <laughs> so the attack starts going. The Imperials are attacking the Rebel fleet. I love the artwork here. The shots are being taken by the shields on Home One. So you see it going up and smacking against the shields. That was a very well-done piece of artwork here. Ma Mothma is racing to the command center. She seems to know more than we do at this point, and it turns out she certainly will. Luke 
and Wedge have to find a way to basically get aboard Home One. There's no way to let them know that they're rebels. Apparently, they can't just communicate with them through the comlink system. So they're basically going to have to crash down onto Home One's hangar deck before anybody will know that they are rebels. So they're sort of putting their lives at risk to be able to do this. And as the battle is commencing, here comes Leia zipping back from Alderaan, herself winding up having to crash aboard. And it's really kind of cool the way they set up the idea that she can sort of fly through the deflector shields to land. Maybe not necessarily the shields on the hangar bay, but fly through the shields um, that, are, that are blocking the turbo laser shots and such. So you get this cool image where it's like, here's a shot being blocked, here's a shot being blocked, and her X-Wing just behind one of them. She screeches her way, crashing into the deck very quickly, jumps out and basically says, you know, she wants to be refueled, um, and she gathers up the squadron to go into battle, gathers up a stealth squadron to go into battle. Again, more space battle, and then also crashing into the deck, the two TIE Interceptors flown by Luke and Wedge, who are going to be able to be part of this battle as well. Meanwhile, jumping away, we wind up in the Kularan system, which is when we find Perla and Han and Chewie at the asteroid belt, just looking for what kind of stuff they've got that they could use for the Rebellion, and sort of this idea that Perla needs a way out, essentially. You know, she needs steady business, so she's willing to make a trade of, this, of access to the stuff that's there in return for, you know, steady jobs, steady pay, pay for the few things that they actually do need up front, that sort of thing, pay for helping out Han, basically kind of playing the role that Han played, you know, I'm willing to stick around, but only if you pay me because I'm a business person, not some kind of rebel. That then throws us back into the battle. And in our battle, essentially, we have a lot of cockpit shots of them talking uh, over the comic. It's actually pretty cool. You know, you can't really tell the characters apart, except for the females, because they're drawn differently. But you've got Falback, you've got Cortez, you've got Ardana. They're back in the game here. These characters that didn't get a whole lot of development as part of the squadron. Why is Prithi not there? Don't forget, Prithi is still in the med bay at this point. Great, great action. And in the process, Luke takes the time to call Prithi, or, or to be on a call with Prithi. You know, are you going to be okay? She sliced into the comms. In her... Uh, in the med bay, apparently, Prithi sliced into the comms just uh, to tell Luke to come back to her. You know, I need to make it up to you for leaving you before, for leaving them back aboard the Devastator and all. And, of course, they had their tender little moment there of, you know, you can count on it. I'll make it back and whatnot. But you would think that this is the time to be like, you know, cut the chatter, Prithi. What are you doing? You know, distracting him in the middle of a battle is going to get him killed. But fortunately, they managed to make it through. And at the very moment where things seem most intense, we get this what? Where Bircher, and we can tell who he is because he says his name and he's in that that Imperial pilot outfit that in the lights of his ship always make him appear to be red whereas the other pilots still appear to be black saying, Bircher to home one I hope you kept the front door unlocked and he basically jams all the tactical channels he locks down controls of all the other TIE Interceptors to his ship so they cannot continue to fight. He has to basically send them back to the Imperial ships, uh, to the Star Destroyer, without their victory. And they allow him to land. And it's like, what? And the Rebels yeah. are ordered not to pursue. And we're thinking, what? Only for him to, cra to, to land. None of these guys can apparently land a Starfighter correctly. Every single person who lands a Starfighter in the course of this issue 
runs into the deck in the hangar bay and has to screech to a halt. Some poor janitor's going to have to clean up that mess, and they're going to have to patch up uh, the floor, apparently. But he emerges from his TIE fighter, and it turns out that Kel Bercher was actually a spy. And he's reporting back for duty. He's got the Devastator's main core information on some, some data things that he's brought. And it turns out that he is Mon Mothma's heretofore never-discussed nephew. What? Yeah, that was huge. <laughs> I was jaw-dropped, like, wait. Huh? <laughs> like, that's that moment where you stop and you go back a few issues, you know? You're like, wait, what? There were things, though, going forward with this. You know, I never knew that TIE Fighters had afterburners. That kind of, I was like, whoa, wait. And, and you know, they launched forward. And then, of course, Bertrand wants to shoot them down, which, you know, from the grand scheme of things, from the Imperial Army side, it looked like you had three defectors, not just one. So it's like that kind of plays out for them. Uh, you know, Perla's scene, I, I like that because it gives it gives everything that you've had there a point. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Han actually has served a purpose here. That works. You know, and you mentioned, you know, Bircher's uniform uh, being red from the backwash. But when he gets out, you notice he's actually wearing a, a red tinted uniform. It's actually been that color the whole time, which was weird. Like, okay, so, so much for that uniformity and all. But the space battle, man, that adds a glorious art. The art on that all the way around, the way they capture the people and stuff works. I thought one of the other things that was really cool was they used a couple of the pilots. You know, you mentioned one of them was a lady. But there's three scenes with the pilots, and they basically give you all the pilots by it. You know, uh, they go, listen, Wedge goes, listen up, squadron. What we have here is an elite squadron of TIE interceptors, 36 fighters, all top-of-the-line models. Even with the other squadrons joining us, we're looking at two-to-one odds. Start sounding off in flights of two. And you got Ardana here. I'm with Russ. Colin, fall back here with Tess. I mean, so they're able to tell you, you know, all the different names and stuff with just these little scenes. I thought that was kind of a little slick way of going about it. I mean, instead of having to add all these images of them all reporting in, like we've gotten in some of the rogue comics and stuff, they were able to use half the people to do the same amount of stuff. And again, the art and stuff, Luke in the uniform, uh, you know, with his helmet on and stuff, all gritty and stuff. I like it. It, it. It's working. It's bouncing. And then, of course, Prithy shows up in there talking and stuff. And, and that was just a little weird. And she's like, and I will be if you come back. Which kind of felt at odds with what we get in the next issue. You know, like, what was the point of that? And, and I guess for me, with all of this series, not just this arc, but all the way around, it's like, yeah, a story's been told, but there were a lot of moments of what was the point of that along the way? And, and that to me, like, you know, as an EU fan, and we've got works out there that are shining examples of what's good and shining examples of what's bad. It's like, we don't need another one that's run of the mill. You know, we need some home runs. Especially this late in the Legends game, you know, I would hate for it to never grow beyond, you know, these stories. Yeah, we, we're going to get books like Imperial Hand, the Imperial Handbook, which, you know, how cool would that be to have that medal, you know, from earlier in that earlier comic, have, you know, the Death Star medal in the Imperial Handbook. But, you know, I, I would hate, though, to see stories like this be the end of it all and just be run of the mill. Sadly, though, that's pretty much what we got. I mean, it's. And we, well, we'll get to that when we get to our final impressions and that sort of thing here. I think that's when we can really sort of take the time to step back and say, okay, what would this have been if this wasn't part of Legends continuity versus what is it now that it is? Uh, we get a final scene in that issue before we jump to the final issue of the story in which Vader is informed that uh, Beresia has left a message for him that basically apologizes and asks for forgiveness and she has disappeared. 
and that Bircher is apparently missing in action during that battle with the Rebels that didn't wind up paying off. And you get the sense that Vader's ticked off. He wants his shuttle prepared, and he's going to be speaking with Palpatine uh, at this point. He's not going to go meet Palpatine, but he wants his shuttle prepared, and that actually will bear out a little bit in the next issue and set up the two issues that follow it. But I, I had to laugh here on the second read. The first read, I'm just kind of like, oh, that's that's cool. You know, that's it's a good way to condense everything together and say, okay, well, here is this message. Because uh, it's a person reporting to Vader about what Beera said in the message, not actually him listening to the message. And it makes sense from, a, from the sense of trying to condense it down to fit on one page. But part of it sits back and says, dude, who had the balls to get into an encrypted personal communication for Vader and <laughs> read his mail, basically? I mean, man! We're talking more nuts than it took for somebody to hack into those uh, email accounts and listen in on those phone calls in the scandal a while back with that uh, UK media organization. Somebody is risking their life by taking it upon themselves to check out Vader's voicemail. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you gotta have some Death Star sized cojones. <laughs> Thank goodness it wasn't a confidential communication from Vader's doctor or something. That finally brings us into issue number 12, the final part of From the Ruins of Alderaan, which, of course, you wouldn't be able to tell in the issue itself because these issues have no titles in them, but this is where the From the Ruins of Alderaan trade paperback ends, and this story arc's basic arc finally ends. So the Imperial fleet escapes. The rebels will not wind up chasing after them at this point. They have bigger fish to fry. And at this point, we learn a little bit more about Kel Bircher. That not only is he the nephew of Mon Mothma, but he's been basically a spy for the Rebels. Leia is ticked off because she was never told about this. But it's like, hey, you know, don't worry. You'll get all the explanation that you need. Grab Wedge, grab Luke. Well, she asked if she can grab Wedge and Luke. And we'll all sit down and, and you'll get briefed on what exactly it is that's going on here. And in that briefing, we basically learn that months before the Battle of Yavin, Kel who is a member of the Chandrillan Special Forces and a student of political history and a devout rebel, etc., etc. Uh, they made this plan, he and Mon Mothma, his aunt, that they would have a Bothan, because, uh, you know, if it's going to be slicing or spy work, it's got to be a Bothan, basically build a fake identity and a fake military history for this guy, slice it into civilian and military databases across the Empire, and then they were going to seed him into the Empire. And somehow... This never gets caught in background checks or anything when he somehow winds up getting promoted to command the freaking Devastator, taking Vader's place and commanding that Star Destroyer. That seems a little bit odd, off. But the only people who knew about this, of course, were Bircher, Mon Mothma, and that Bothan. It was a dangerous mission for him to go behind the scenes because if something had happened, if uh, Mon Mothma had been killed or something... Then he would have been a lost asset, a spy trapped behind enemy lines. And Wedge puts the question to him basically of, you know, were there any safeguards? Because Bircher was out there leading starfighters, leading TIE fighters against the rebels in combat and leading the Devastator against the rebels in combat. So in all the stuff that wound up happening in these previous issues, was there any safeguard in place to make sure that rebels didn't get killed to maintain Bircher's cover. Now, if he's a spy, having somebody on your own side get killed in combat because you couldn't blow your cover is something that is usually thought of as somewhat acceptable within a lot of storytelling. 
because there is that level of, you know, well, do you blow your cover and blow your mission and everything that could go with it? Or do you keep your cover even if it means other lives? How do you balance those two out and somewhat minimize the amount of risk that is involved here? And it turns out that Bircher always had a kill switch, an override switch, where he could have ended the battle at any time by just clicking it if it looked like it was going to cost too many rebel lives and such. And because he's used to following orders, used to not always having all the information because he's a pilot, not uh, one of the strategists for the rebellion, Wedge is satisfied. Wedge is okay with it. In fact, Wedge is going to ask basically to, to take apart the stealth squadron and rebuild it as the core of Rogue Squadron, a new official squadron, and even is willing to invite Bircher to be a part of this. As interesting as that all is in this sense of, whoa, he was really a spy, we don't really get to find out much in terms, at least at this point, of what he has learned. What benefit did they get out of this? Would he? How much would he have been willing to sacrifice before he hit that kill switch in a battle with the Rebellion? Sadly, he won't be joining Rogue Squadron. They built up this character, and ah, nah, he's just going to go off to Chandrilla. So, hey, look, he was a spy the whole time. And he's gone. Unless he shows up in the last two issues of this series, he does not come back. Wedge is now violating previous continuity and trying to create Rogue Squadron, which doesn't match with the way that it was done before. But I have to sit back and say, wait a second. Leia's pissed. Maybe she should be even more pissed than we realize as the reader, though. Because this pretty much puts an end to the whole Imperial Mole story, doesn't it? I mean, they've sliced the data on the Star Destroyer. We have no idea what that revealed as far as the information about who the Mole might be. But now we get this sense that the whole Mole storyline is dropped because, oh look, Bircher was a rebel spy all along, which suggests that he was the one that constantly kept allowing them to continue chasing after the rebels. But it seems like they use this instance to basically go poof, and the whole mole storyline just evaporates. Yeah, that was a huge one for me, too. It was like, so Bircher was the mole? So Mon Mothma was leaking everything? But wasn't there a point where Leia was keeping things from Mon Mothma even, and that stuff showed up through the mole? I don't know. Maybe that was also partially because I was reading Razor's Edge at the time. Maybe I just got too many moles. <laughs> I don't know. I just couldn't quite track with that. Yeah, Bircher, I like the idea of the characters changing over, but most of what we get leaves me thinking that Brian Wood had a much, a much larger picture of what he wanted to show us. And he just picked the highlights. You know, I mean, there, there, there's so much background information that just never shows up, never hinted at, and we're just supposed to swallow it and move on. There is one cool little scene, though, you know, when, when he walks out and he, he tells Leia, he, he hits on Leia, and she he goes, you're a damn fine pilot. Like, I'm assuming he's talking about her skills, not her looks, but it could be either well, way. Well, you notice this is, this is also after he... He turns to Mon Mothma and says, you know, uh, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, and nephew to this impressive woman here. It kind of actually seems like not only is he hitting on Leia, didn't it feel for a second like he was kind of creepily hitting on Mon Mothma? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, like my genes are so good. You know, Yeah, but there's another scene where it shows the hangar, kind of give you an idea of where the scene's at now. And I love that opening shot. You know, it shows you got two X-Wings nose to nose and then across from them, another two with one of the noses opening and they're putting in a new sensor packet. 
And up above in the rafters, you can see the old one all damaged that's been removed. I just thought that was a really cool panel there. And there's no words going on or anything like that. And yet it expressed and conveyed the fact that they're repairing the ship. You can see the old part, the new part. It worked. I really liked it. And then you get a little bit of, you know, the, the now rogues uh, talking and stuff and, and their, their talk. But yeah, I, I just, at this point, I'm, I'm at that point in the comic where I'm just so lost with, What's going on? The the dropping of the plot with the other guy and stuff. I'm like, well, where what's going on? You, you realize at this point you're committed to at least two more rereads to try to figure out what in the hell is going on. And I can tell you, after four rereads, I still don't quite understand everything. It is essentially like Brian Wood is taking his storytelling cues from Revenge of the Sith in the view of Lucas's writing of Revenge of the Sith, as opposed to the Stover effect of having read the novel, which is the Wow, that happened kind of fast. Don't we need a little bit of explanation? Don't worry, we're going to rely on somebody else to come along and explain it later. Love that film, but it, a lot of it comes from the fact that so many gaps were filled in by Stover. Kind of the same thing happening here, but nobody's filling in these gaps. So we've got uh, Wedge goes and speaks to his pilots, tells them about the formation of Rogue Squadron and how basically they're going to figure out who the XO is by having them run TIE Interceptor drills and stuff like that to see who it is that's the best. Luke goes to visit Prithee, who basically decides, seemingly again, that she's going home. Only in this case, she's not leaving because of her feelings for Luke. She's leaving despite her feelings for Luke. She's going to go back to Chalacta. She's going to train uh, to basically be one of their sort of mystics because she can touch the Force and whatnot. She wants to go to one of the spiritual refuges um, to learn more about it, do something noble, uh, what's thought of as a noble calling for her people. They say a brief uh, goodbye, essentially, and Prithi is effectively, at this point, written out of the story. The Prithi thing, the fact that she has those feelings for Luke, it does influence her, and finally she steps away, that works out pretty well. I think it, work, it, it works out better than Luke's feelings having to do with Leia, as we'll see in Rebel Girl, where he acts like a petulant freaking child. Mm -hmm. um, but in this arc... I think the interaction between the two plays out well enough, although it does start with a lot of Luke being kind of snide and snotty because he thinks he's great uh, and he's not being treated as such. The only thing about Prithi that really, the two things about Prithi that really get me was how at the end of the last arc they made it look like she was leaving, but she didn't with no explanation, and the fact that they still haven't really gotten into the, well, wait a second, why is it that you could hear Obi-Wan? Is it basically that anybody who can sense the Force hears voices of dead Jedi, and doesn't that mean, for instance, back on the Death Star, that when Luke did the, no, and starts shooting, and you had to hear, have Obi-Wan say, run, Luke, run, shouldn't Leia have heard that and been like, the hell was that? No, that's exactly what it means. Brian Wood's interpretation is flat out that. I mean, that, that to me, I think, was a tough swallow. Because she's Force-sensitive, she can hear Obi-Wan. I'm assuming then that must mean she should be able to see Obi-Wan, which would mean that Leia saw Yoda, Obi-Wan, and Dad, which would have been really weird. Who's that young guy younger than us? Yeah, I mean, I, 
this one I've got to vehemently disagree with Brian Wood's interpretation. That is not at all how I ever anticipated it working. If that is how they're going to make it go from here on forward, they need to quickly establish that in Rebels because that has never been the trend in Star Wars. I mean, that's like I said when when we have uh, you know Luke do the old Leia in Empire Strikes Back. I mean, obviously Wood interpreted that as Leia actually full on hearing him. I mean, it's, I don't know, doesn't quite work with that. Uh, Prithi's leaving though, it makes sense on one level and yet on the other, it doesn't, you know, I mean, there's, there's part of her where she kind of feels shamed for, you know, disobeying protocols and, and running right back, but it's like, okay, but that did exactly what they needed you to do for Bircher. It did exactly what they needed you to do for Luke and them. They wouldn't have been able to get back to the fleet had you not do that. So was that part of the plan or not? I'm getting from the fact that she's saying, you know, I got to leave because I'm embarrassed now and everyone's going to look at me differently that that wasn't part of the plan, but it was like, so what in the hell was the plan then? Just to let him die? You mentioned Leia, how Leia should have been able to see the Force Ghosts at the end of Return of the Jedi. I guess before 2004, it would have been, wow, look, is that Dad? Then after 2004 with the DVD and Blu-ray editions, it would have to have been something like, look, it's Obi-Wan and Yoda and who is that creepy guy looking at me like a sexual predator? Because the, <laughs> the look that Hayden Christensen gives in that scene creeps me the hell out every single time. He looks like he should be on Dateline to catch a predator showing up at a house with beer trying to meet an underage girl. That's basically what he looks like. It could be worse. I mean, think about this. She's got a thing for bad boys. She uh -huh. kissed her brother. I mean, what if she'd have been turned on by him? Like, who's that honk right there next to Yoda? Oh my gosh, Luke, he is so dreamy. And look at the way he's looking at me. We could just eat him up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, and then they could go on to have a, a, a children that would be what uh, her brother slash sister slash daughter slash son. Um, anyway, wouldn't put it past Star Wars family relations. But um, we continue on with the issue. Uh, Han and Perla arrive, uh, or Han and Chewie and Perla arrive. They manage to uh, have her strike a deal. Basically, she's going to get a ship. She's going to get a five-year contract basically with the Rebellion. And they're going to get all kinds of stuff uh, from that junkyard and whatnot. Leia is in a little bit of a huff because Perla is all sweet on Han at this point, of course, and flirting. Han catches up to Leia. They have another of those, uh, you know, you could use a good kiss almost type of moments where uh, he steps in. He's, you know, he's like, I just wanted to see how you're holding up. After everything that's happened, Han, I'm still the damsel in distress. Come on. You know that's not it. Look, it may not seem like it, but I care. I do. I care about you. You care which apparently is a statement, not a question. Is that so hard to imagine? Sometimes, yes. That hurts. That's the idea, and she thumps him on the cheek. I'm taking that as progress, sweetheart. Great character moment for those two who've barely had any chance to interact within this series. But then we get into what amounts to essentially the two scenes that act as the, the, the bridge that will push us into the next two story arcs. Five Days of Sith with Vader and Rebel Girl, again with that somewhat odd title, with Leia. Uh, because, again, not because she's not a girl and it's not good to, to emphasize the fact that it's a female lead, no. But because Rebel Girl, to me, sounds diminutive. Just like saying Rebel Boy instead of Rebel Guy or Rebel Man would make any male character seem diminutive. And Leia certainly is of a stronger stature than just to be dismissed in that way. At least to me. Plus, you got these great rebel. grand, you got these grandiose titles in the shadow of Yavin, from the ruins of Alderaan, 
five days of Sith. Rebel girl! It doesn't fit. But in any event, uh, to skip over the Rebels for just a second, Vader, for his part, is leaving the Executor and going off on a mission we know nothing about. That is going to be where Five Days of Sith comes in. So he's doing that, he's making those preparations, and then, back at the Rebel fleet, Leia drops a bombshell that sometime during her travels, either before going to the graveyard of Alderaan or afterwards, it almost has to have been afterwards, because she, they tell us in the next arc, or two arcs from now, that she had to stop for water, water supplies, and that's when she has the conversation that relates to all of this. Surely it wasn't before she got to the graveyard of Alderaan, because given what happens in that conversation, surely she wouldn't have then continued on to Alderaan instead of racing the heck back to the fleet to say, hey guys, we've got a new home. But she has managed to make contact with the government of Arochar, A-R-R-O-C-H-A-R, of Arochar and has made a deal to get the Rebels a base there, even though it's odd because usually they try to stay away from populated worlds so as not to put that population at risk. And it turns out that the way this deal has been made is that Leia, a princess of Alderaan, which does still carry some weight even though the planet is gone, has promised to marry the Prince of Erichar, who we'll soon learn is Prince Kaspar a couple storylines from now. But she's basically trading on... Her eligibility as a bachelorette to get them a new base. Han is snarky about it. Leia says, uh, I'm a princess of Alderaan and the legacy in the Senate, that has currency. To which Han replies, to the highest bidder then, is that it? And Luke's like, Han, watch it. Now for a second I was like, why is Luke the one sort of defending her and Han's the smart aleck about this when later Luke will also be the one saying, I can't believe it and acting like the petulant child all throughout Rebel Girl. But then it struck me, didn't he basically just call Leia a whore? Pretty much. <laughs> More or less, to the highest bidder, is that it? Whoa! Maybe want to back off, Han. She may wind up pimp slapping you. Suffice to say, she doesn't seem like she's too happy about this. But it's her life and her decision Mon Mothma hasn't even been consulted yet, um, but she's like, you know what? You know, if Mon Mothma consents, you know, we'll talk about it and and we can make this happen. And after a brief sh a scene of Luke basically shocked and saying that it seems sometimes that three PO and R two are the only friends that he's got, kind of not sure what to make of what's happening with Leia, and the fact, of course, that Prithi just left. So you know, Prithi left. His attention can go back to Leia. No, sorry, Leia's going to get married. Um, we get a one-page ending, which actually happens after some flashbacks that we get in Rebel Girl, in which the Rebel fleet arrives over Erichar, and she is welcome. You know, I welcome both your royal highness and your fleet to your new home. To be continued in issue number 15, The Courtship of Princess Le Oh, wait, no, sorry, that was a different story. You know, what's funny, too, is once again, they use wardrobe to kind of show you that time has gone by. You know, in the scene before that, when Leia smacks hand, she's wearing her white jumpsuit and she's got that white overcoat. And then all of a sudden now she's got the uh, Luke Skywalker. I'm about to get my, you know, award coat kind of thing on over it. And it's like, OK, OK, so time's gone by. I can get that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the whole courtship of Princess Leia. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go again with that plot. Oh, boy. You know, you have to wonder, though, Brian Wood, he brings more plot points out of the off-page part of his story. It would be nice to kind of see that story. I mean, obviously, he's got a, a 
much larger story with a lot more details because so many things necessary to bridge us from one arc to the other or hold whole arcs together are required to come completely out of left field, never ever referenced in the comic whatsoever up to this point, and we're just supposed to swallow and move forward. And it's like, okay, I, I mean, we're doing that, but it's like, dude, at some point, you got to start seeding these things better, man. You can't just constantly pull things in from left field and, and secretly, because you didn't know it, but I'm going to retroactively tell you all about it all. This is what happened. Like, what? Like, dude, your storytelling sucks. It's like we need Paul Harvey in there, right? And now you know the rest of the story. Because <laughs> at this point, there are a lot of holes to it. It's definitely a different style of storytelling than we're used to seeing a lot of times uh, within Star Wars. So I guess from an overall perspective, if this was not part of Legends continuity, if this was a separate universe, a reboot, if this series was just being taken as itself, I think it's just like Clone Wars Season 6. It would have been a Fun read the first time, possibly, even though a little bit confusing, which I guess some of the Yoda art was with Clone Wars. True that. But then on the second going through, you would have been running into those things where it's not just that it was clashing with Legends continuity at times. It seemed like it was inconsistent with itself, repeatedly. Resolute slash Audacity just being one example of that. We pointed out a few as we went along. So in that sense, it's all right. It's very much run-of-the-mill. It's one of those turn-your-brain-off-at-least-a-little-bit-while-you're-reading-it type of stories. Whereas, putting it in context with the rest of the Legends continuity, you're sitting back there slapping your forehead over stuff like Luke returning to Tatooine and the whole issue of Rogue Squadron. But otherwise, it's kind of eh. I think probably the worst thing about this arc, and really this series is that we get a lot of new things popping up that never wind up getting a chance to play out anywhere else. Granted, if they played out, they may have played out in contradictory fashion again. But Bircher, ta-da, he's a spy. Oh, wait, he's going back home, don't worry about it. You know, uh, a Prithy, interesting, the relationship thing with Luke. She can hear Obi-Wan, don't worry, she's going back home too. Beresia, look, she's planted as an agent of Vader. Oh, wait, no, no, she screwed up, so she's running away. All these different instances of things being seeded that feel like they should have been able to pay off beyond this that instead seem like at this point they just kind of... It's not even so much that they hit the brakes. They just kind of coast off in another direction never to be seen again. So yeah, if you're a fan of this series, you probably would have liked this, but for me, no, nah, this, this doesn't do it for me. The artwork is awesome once you get to Carlos de Anda instead of Kelly, but not so much with the story. Yeah, the art's good, and it had potential, but for me, this is kind of like, you know, you, you mentioned Clone Wars Season 6. For me, this is like Clone Wars in general. You know, you've already got two other versions of Clone Wars that do real good at, at lining up with each other, and now you have this one that says, Continuity be damned! We're gonna tell a story! And, you know, again, if this was, the re if this was set in the reboot, I'd be okay. I'd be like, yeah, you know, okay, this is all new stuff. But that was not the case. That wasn't the attention you know i mean this proves to me though that that the story group better have some control going forward and not allow things like this to continue to happen though because if they let this happen this late in the game with legends it's like man that kind of gets you worried art is definitely one of the things that that was a saving grace uh the ships especially like i really i really really dug the dark uh x-wings with the blue and stuff the way that they were colored for the shadow 
or stealth squadron, as it were. The concept of Leia in in the uh, you know the pilot outfit and doing all that kind of stuff. I went back and forth. I like seeing her in that regard, but I didn't like feeling like she was just this ace pilot that was just awesome that everybody needed to acknowledge that she was just one of the best pilots out there kind of feels, which I got that vibe from time to time from it. So yeah, it, it felt off. There was a lot of it felt off. Unlike Clone Wars, though, I can't say that this falls into canon, so I don't have to consider it there. So there's there's one plus there that at least I have a universe where Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2 does not count. Thank the maker for that. Nice. It wasn't... That, that, that is a heck of a silver lining. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it, it may clash with Legends, but at least it's not being carried over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there is that. It wasn't a terrible, terrible run. I mean, I, I say it's run of the mill. You know, I mean, it had elements that really hurt it. You know, if, if those elements weren't there, it would have been a good story. But those elements hurt it so bad that it just it took all hope of me saying it was a good story and leave it mediocre and run of the mill. You know, I mean, if you're going to sit there and pay attention to names like, you know, love interests to Wedge Antilles and things like that, and then ignore other things that have come before it, it's like, what's the point? What are you trying to do? I mean, I, I don't know. To me, it's like Star Wars has never been Star Trek. And to constantly reset continuity for each story just so a writer can tell their story, you know, yeah, I'm willing to give Lucas that. But I'm not going to let everybody come in and, and do that and, and be like, yeah, it's okay. No, that's not okay. You know, have some pride in your work. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't get the name of the ship right. I mean, what was that? I, I would love some de- some explanation here, you know. Well, we had this idea and then Lucas told us. I mean, yeah, blame it on Lucas while you can. That That's a good idea because then everybody will at least buy that. I, I I don't know. I mean, I just I, I felt like it was poorly executed all the way around. From the moment they started talking about continuity before this thing even came out, they were dropping the ball with this. And in fact, I mean that that should have been the sign right there when they were saying, "Yeah, we don't care about continuity. We're gonna pretend like nothing has ever happened." Yeah, wish that was the case, but no. In fact, I'm actually I'm very thankful that that wasn't the case. That this wasn't the reboot, and that we didn't have to consider this canon. So I'm I'm thankful for that. Uh, Nathan, anything else before we move into covers? No, I think I've said my piece and angered plenty of Brian Wood fans already. I, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure we're not going to be uh, very, very uh, heavenly in that regard. They're going to be pretty angry with this. Uh, you know, issue seven, I, I, I kind of for the most part like the covers. Uh, they got like a fuzziness to them. That's a style I, I don't care for, but it didn't ruin any of the covers for me. The first one's Vader. It's very run of the mill. He's kind of like got a dark background and stuff. Kind of reminds me of a Vader action figure. You know, like you expect Vader to have all this really cool movements and stuff. Or like the Black Series, you know, they show you a really cool Vader and then the one you get looks like this cover. You're like, oh. Oh, it looks like he's got no articulation. Okay. And it just says the Empire is watching. Like, ooh, how brooding. All right. Okay. I'm behind on that. And I would say the next one, uh, number eight, is probably my least favorite. Not because of what's on it, but because of the likenesses. It's Wedge and it's Luke. And it looks like they're either about to get into the TIE Fighters or they're in the hangar. Uh, and they're, you know, well, Luke's. Luke's sitting there striking a pose with his gun pointed up while Wedge is actually firing back as they're being shot at with a hailstorm of blaster fires. So that makes no sense. Like, Luke, wake up. But the the looks of the characters, I didn't really care for that. With the grainy style, it really kind of ruined it for me. Uh, nine, you've got a princess without a planet. 
this is probably one of my favorite ones. I mean, it's still got that grittiness, but it works. You, you've got her floating in the space around Alderaan. You've got the asteroid belt of Alderaan behind her and her stealth X with its running lights on with a tether for her. And she's kind of like, it looks like she's like leaving the X wing to fly to find a docking bay on the ship, which never happens in the comic, but it's really cool look to it. Number 10 is another one. I, I like it, but again, the, the grittiness of it kind of takes away from it for me, but not enough to make it bad. You got Luke with a smoking blaster and you got two stormtroopers in the back of the uh, detention center hallway and it, him and Wedge are both wearing armor and they've got their helmets off, but you know, there's no body to kind of show where they got the armor. So you must assume they must've just stripped down and got, you know, dressed right then and there. Uh, another one that I really enjoy was 11 rebels versus the galactic empire. Just a space battle shot. Again, the grittiness gives it of a kind of, Ralph McQuarrie feel for me. You know, I've, I've, there are others that I enjoy more than this shot that I would put up as a desktop background or something like that. I wouldn't use this one because of the graininess, but as a cover, it works. Uh, and then my second favorite is number 12. It says Leia's decision on it, and it's got one of those weird rebel, uh, you know, the Death Star is approaching kind of radar looks to it. It's got three green circles and some lines and stuff going on. Kind of looks like it's one of their tracking devices that the Rebels used. It's got Han looking up. It's got Luke looking to the side and Leia kind of from the side like she's thinking with the uh, TIE fighters kind of swooping around each other and stuff blasting. I don't know. The, the, the greens and stuff for it, I really like it. It kind of ha- gives me a movie poster feel. Nate, what about you? Yeah, none of these really stand out to me as bad. They're all just kind of so-so. Seven with Vader there. The Empire is watching. Okay. Nothing special. Luke and Wedge apparently in pilot gear, which doesn't happen when they're actually fighting the Empire here. Not even when they're actually in the TIE Fighters, because they're just in Stormtrooper armor. <laughs> Taking the fight to the Empire? Okay. Kind of generic. Just That's a lot of freaking blaster bolts. That's all I gotta say. Boy, Stormtroopers suck at shooting. Uh, yeah. Leia doing the whole EVA thing. It, it reminds me of a lot of different movies actually. Things like gravity and whatnot. So it's a cool cover. Doesn't happen within the issue, but cool cover, at least. A princess without a planet. Woo! Man! It's only two months after Yavin. Too soon? Too soon to make that comment about her? (laughs) Issue number 10. Decent cover. You know, Luke there holding the... Well, Luke and Wedge, both in the Stormtrooper armor, holding the helmets. Presumably this must be when they get it. We don't see it in the the story itself, Um, but they do wind up in Stormtrooper armor inside the Interceptors. This actually is the cover that they wind up using for the trade paperback from the ruins of Alderaan. So you'll see that cover again if you pick up the trade paperback. The space battle, again, very Macquarie feeling like you said. It's a good battle shot. I mean, there's nothing spectacular about it, but it's kind of cool to see. It's nice to see that they're moving away from having to feature the characters. They can just feature, you know, battle sequences and whatnot. So that works, although it's kind of uh, amusing that in the battle we get here, it's a bunch of X-Wings and Y-Wings versus regular TIE Fighters, not a TIE Interceptor in sight, except for, I think it's one, or sorry, two, I guess it is one teeny tiny on sort of the the near the bottom on the right, and one teeny tiny under the phrase Rebels versus the Galactic Empire. Um, So it's not quite depicting the battle as we see it within, but again, what we got with a lot of covers. Uh, My favorite has to be number 12. Because 12 really does, as you said, get that movie poster kind of feel to go along with it. And they even go so far as, if you look at the detail on it, granted, it's regular TIE fighters again instead of TIE interceptors, which is kind of frustrating. But if you look at Luke, it's apparently using Luke from a new... Because these are all using film reference shots, you can tell, to draw the characters. But you check out Luke, the reference shot they used for Luke has that black collar on him. So it was when he was in the Stormtrooper armor 
which of course is the armor he's in while they're in the TIE Interceptor. So I think it was kind of neat that they would use that one as the reference point because it does tend to fit in with uh, what he wears for part of this issue. That to me is an unusual surprising attention to detail to get. Though of course, then you get the regular TIE Fighters. So 12 is my favorite. The other ones, not bad, not great. Just kind of there. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends slash EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. They have a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre out there without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. I know it's sad to go, huh? No, oh, he, he just read Brian Wood stuff. Uh, and Nathan! <laughs> Saying, thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that in our next episode, when we talk about Legacy Volume 2, Outcasts of the Broken Ring, if it's actually possible to have artwork that is harder to see, darker, and more muddied looking than what we got from Gabriel Hardman in the first arc of that series. Spoilers! Oh yeah, it's possible. <laughs> what are the odds we're going to get lambasted for these next four episodes? Oh, pretty good for at least some, I would saying, uh, you know, Bertrand a home run. That finally brings us into Ishul. Ishul? Whatever the hell that is. I don't know what an Ishul is. I am not going to reconfigure you. You're going to work, motherfucker. Yeah, I've got this little... I'm sure that's what Brian Wood said about the series, you know, when they were when he was told about the continuity errors. You know, it's still gonna work, motherfucker. I'm not gonna do this. I'm just gonna make it work. What do you mean I can't do an origin story about Rogue Squadron? The hell I can't! <laughs> Didn't you see all the press I was getting? I'm in the driver's seat now, Biatch!
you know, that press kind of did tell us this was coming. Yeah. <laughs> Continuity be damned! <laughs> okay. It's like, it's like the press for this series didn't take into account anything about how it was going to turn out. It was just, look, look who the, the creative team is. It's Carlos De Anda and Brian Wood. It's Star Wars. What could possibly go wrong? Everything is awesome! <laughs> <laughs> Everything is great when 